I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 2 if you want to, you know, surprise, surprise, it's Pentecost Sunday and I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> but before we get to Acts chapter 2, um, and really I want you to think about this as we go through this uh, message. Acts 2 is the plan. It is the plan as it comes into view as to what Jesus had in mind when he started the church. Acts 2 is the plan. It's as close to the exactness of what the Lord wanted when you read that chapter. You see the increased activity of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, but that's not where it started. Of course, you can go back to Genesis where the Holy Spirit moved over the face of the deep and brought out of chaos order, and that was the first instance of the activity of the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to take you through an overview, and this is all in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 before we get to Acts 2. And still, we're still dealing with the same author, right? This is Dr. Luke's writings. So, uh, before an angel appeared to a virgin named Mary up in Nazareth, an angel had already appeared to a priest down in Judea, in Jerusalem, in the temple itself, As he was doing his priestly functions that day, an angel appeared to Zechariah and told him that his wife was going to get pregnant, which was kind of a miracle in itself because they were beyond their years of having children. So right after that, six months later, an angel appears to Mary and tells her that she's going to be pregnant with the Messiah. And even as a virgin, this is going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. That angel also told Mary that her cousin, down in Judea, Elizabeth, is also pregnant and is six months into her pregnancy. So Mary leaves her hometown of Nazareth, travels down to spend some time with Elizabeth, and she stays there three months. Whether she was there up to the birth of John the Baptist or right before the birth of John, she was there for that three months time. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, when Mary greeted Elizabeth, by the way, this is part of the prophecy that the angel gave Zechariah. says, you're going to have a really special child because this child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Now, how many would like to have a spirit-filled baby? That, you know, I mean, I had to be a different baby. <laughs> Just had to. But that, that baby was so ordained of God that God said, the Spirit of God will be in that baby as that baby develops through gestation. And it's not surprising that when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house and she greets her cousin, that Elizabeth grabs her pregnant belly and says, the baby just leaped. I don't know what you'd describe as a leap, but John heard the greeting of Mary and reacted. And what happens next is Mary, uh, Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to prophesy over Mary. So the Holy Spirit is starting to show more more and more people are starting to get 
filled with the Holy Spirit from this baby still in the womb here, his mother, his pregnant mother, also comes under this powerful influence of the Holy Spirit, and she begins to prophesy over Mary. Down in, in verse 67, the baby is born, and, you know, Zechariah, he, he hasn't talked to anybody for nine months because he didn't believe that this was possible. And as soon as his speech got freed up, it says in verse 67, and I'll read this if you're not following along, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And you ought to listen to the prophecy. This is a man who didn't expect that he and his wife could ever have a child and not just have a child, have a child filled with the Holy Spirit while in the womb. And so he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. How in the world is he saying that? He's an excited father, but all of a sudden he's prophesying that something redemptive is happening right here in our celebration of this newborn. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he was not talking about John. He was prophesying that three months later, Jesus would arrive. He said, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. He's not finished. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here he prophesies over his own baby. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Listen to this. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. This is a whole new concept, but Zechariah's prophesying it. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Do you see the increasing activity of the Holy Spirit? And look at what Zacharias declaring. Now soon in, in this gospel account, Luke writes that John arrives as a preaching prophet to the people of Israel in fulfillment of his dad's prophecy, who's probably been dead for a long time. Because they're in their older years when he's born, and now he's probably near 30. Because he starts his ministry right before Jesus starts his ministry, and only three months separates their birthdays. In Luke chapter 3, as, as John begins to preach, he says this, because some people start thinking, this is a powerful prophet. Maybe he's the Messiah. And John takes exception to that and dismisses it quickly. This is what he said in John 3.16. I baptize you with water, but one is coming more powerful than I. He, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with a Holy Spirit and fire. He not only says... I'm not the one, but I'm not even in the same league with him. I'm not even worthy to undo his sandals. I'm immersing people in water for repentance of sin, as an evidence of repentance for sin. 
He said, but the one coming behind me, he will immerse you. You know, baptism, bab, baptize is not translated. It's baptizo. It's just given an English sound. It means to immerse. It means to put into complete submersion. And he said, he will baptize you. Jesus will baptize you, immerse you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Shortly after that, though, John baptizes Jesus in the River Jordan. And in in Luke 3.22, this happens. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven comes forth saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And and Luke 4.1 starts this way. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So there wasn't just a symbolic dove that came and says, you know, this is the one set apart. There, there was an actual feeling of Jesus with the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. The Spirit leads him and guides him. One translation says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness for a 40-day wilderness warfare. And when Jesus comes out of that, it says that he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit and launched his ministry. Now, if you're following with me in Luke 4, it gets really interesting. Because as Jesus begins to preach, he becomes a popular guest at local synagogues. And so he's invited to speak in his hometown synagogue. And he opens the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah reads this way. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And all of the ministry that Jesus would do was prophesied by Isaiah. Now let's go to Acts. That was just an overview. Let me, let me just mention one thing before we go to Acts. Because, you know, Luke is the first treatise that he wrote to Theophilus. And he begins the early words of Acts. Uh, you know, this is another treatise to you, Theophilus, like the first one I wrote to you. This is a continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus. Listen to how Luke finishes his gospel. And when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he, let, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually in the temple praising God. But he elaborates on that setting in Acts chapter 1. Look in verse 4. I know I'm not at the Acts 2 yet, but we're getting there. In Acts 1-4, Luke records this. This is like maybe 40 or 50 years. Could be after it actually happened. So Luke is not standing and taking notes as this is happening. The, the Spirit of God provokes him to write this. He says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. This is, this is the Lord saying, this is the plan, folks. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave until you're clothed with power from on high. Until you're endued with the gift that he says, my father has promised which you have heard me speak. For John, remember, Jesus is pointing back to what John said about himself. 
John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This has always been the Lord's plan. Even when he looked at his apostles and he says, he breathed on him, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He told him, he says, the Holy Spirit is now with you, but there's coming a time he will be in you. He won't be an external presence. He will be an internal empowering presence. Donald G. wrote one of the great studies on the Holy Spirit, and it's titled The Empowering Presence of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God's empowering presence. And over in, 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 in Acts 6, 1, 6, you know, they're like more concerned about, well, is this when you're going to restore Israel? Is this when all this is going to happen? Is, is this eschatology in front of us? Are we about to see Israel rebirth? And this is what Jesus said in Acts 1, 7. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You know what? You ought to, like, make a mark there and just say, remember that. Anytime somebody tells you how many a generation is, and they date it from 1948, you know, you have to just discover why they do that. You know, that... That's when the rapture is going to take place. You can date it from 1940. They've dated everything from 1948. But he says, that's not for you to know. So I'm, I, I want to tell people, that's not for you to know. <laughs> but this is the most important thing. This is what you should know. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This has always been his plan. Not to train us with knowledge and send us out in our own strength. Not to give us strategies that we can carry out without prayer and without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Not things that we can do in and on ourselves and just pray over it as though we're blessing it, but we've already planned what we're doing. It is letting him birth passion in our souls to the Holy Spirit to carry out his plan, not our plan. It's about him. It's not about us. And that's not a bad thing for us to remind ourselves personally. It's not about me. It's about him. And this is what he's trying to tell him. It's not, that's not important. I'm not going to discuss prophecy with you. Here's what I want you to know. When you wait, if you do what I'm telling you to, you do not leave Jerusalem until this happens. When that happens, you will have power that's not of you. You will have power that's of heaven. It's not of man. And that power is to cause you to be witnesses unto me. Beginning right here in Jerusalem, Judea, the other parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. So they begin this watch and wait, praying. Peter is kind of like assuming leadership. He, he directs a business session where they vote on who replaces Judas. And Matthias is the one they vote in. So... He, he's already kind of like stepping into a leadership role. But then you have Acts 2. Do you, are you turned there? If you're not turned to Acts 2, I want you to just follow this with me. Let's see how we're doing. Not bad. All right, here we go. This is the plan. I want you to think about it as we read this. This was his plan all along. This is why he told him, don't leave. Don't leave the upper room. Stay in prayer. Stay focused. You know, like, don't give up after a few days. Well, nothing's happening. I've got things to do. I've got 
I've got crops to tend to. I've got a family to take care of. And all the things that probably were crowding into people's minds. He says, if you resist that, if you resist that and you stay put until you receive something that's going to be so powerful, it's going to thrust you out as my witnesses into the world. Regardless of what inhibitions you may personally have, you will receive power to be my witnesses. And when that happens, watch this. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. We know all too well what that sounds like, don't we? There was a violent wind at that wedding. It's a wonder they didn't run out of the room if it was the kind of wind we endured. <laughs> Head for cover. This blowing of a, it was the sound of a blowing violent wind from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And, and visibly there was flames that came and they looked like cluster of tongues. And they begin to break apart and on each person's head, every, whether it's a child or adult, an adolescent, no matter who was there, a, a tongue landed on every single person. And they saw this happening as they looked around. They heard the wind. They saw these, this visible flame coming and, and resting on all of them. And they were suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, just like he said that it would happen, that they would be baptized, immersed, filled with the Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's a lot of people that would like to like just cut that statement out of the Bible, but there it is. This was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was the evidence and the results of their immersion in the Spirit. Because this was all supernatural. Because they just weren't talking in unknown tongues. They were talking in dialects that other people knew. Watch this. And there was staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, they heard the sound of all these languages, their dialects. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their, in their own language, being spoken, utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? We know these people aren't bilingual. How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language, in our native dialect? And there's 15 groups of people that are mentioned spanning an enormous geographical area all the way to Rome. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, in our own dialects. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What meaneth this? Verse 13. Now, something's about to really happen here. Nobody is saying anything that's in the upper room. Everything that's being said right now are people gathered around them listening to this phenomenon 
of hearing the things of God from people they know don't know their dialects. So, some, however, made fun of them and said they're drunk. They've got too much wine in them. Now, I like this break right here because I can just see Peter kind of like listening to what they're saying. But something happens to him when someone makes fun of him. Something happens in the spirit realm and he stood up with the other 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And let me just preface, if you look down at the end of what we're going to read here, 3,000 people come to convert to Christianity right there. All right. I've got a little lapel mic, and most of you can hear me. But think about Peter and what the challenge was for him, like Jesus. I'm sure Jesus didn't whisper his sermons. He had thousands of people there. So Peter raises his voice. And the first thing he does is get their attention. Listen carefully. I'm going to explain all of this to you. We're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's not, that's not what's going on here. That's what he says. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He stood up and he said this. In verse 16, he says, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, I'm going to go through this chapter, so just buckle your seatbelt, all right? I didn't tell you that beforehand, but here we are. We're already into it, right? All right. Peter was not in a library all week long preparing a sermon and saying, I got to be ready to preach to these people. They just got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he is immediately anointed by the Lord to stand up and to tell everybody, I'm going to explain what's going on here. And he goes all the way back to Joel's prophecy hundreds of years ago. And Joel is not a long prophecy. It's a very short, I think, four chapters. And it kind of lets you know that the length of a prophecy doesn't really determine its relevance, does it? So he tells him, this is Joel. Joel had his hand on this early. And this is what he quotes from Joel in Joel 2, verse 28. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that finishes his quote from Joel. So he addresses it again. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You know, there was no question that Jesus was doing miracles. They just didn't like it. But he was doing miracles. 
This man was handed over to you by God's determined, deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him, oh, listen to this, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible, it was impossible, it was impossible for death to hold or to keep its hold on him. He said, this is what happened. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he quotes David from Psalm 16. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because where did he get this? Where did Peter get this information? I think somewhere in the three years that he was following Jesus around, they were exposed to this. And they were taught this. And they were taught, taught Joel. And they were taught Isaiah. And they were taught about what David prophesied. So he goes to Psalm 16. And he says, David said this, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his sepulcher is right over there. (laughs) Because they still have a sepulcher of David right over there. He's telling him, he says, David could not have been talking about himself because he died and his body decayed and it's still buried right over there. But he was a prophet. He said David was prophesying in the song and knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the rim of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he's poured that promise out right here. It says, all of this has been planned from the foundation of the earth. This day was exactly what God planned for it to be. For us to see the power of God poured out upon the people who are trusting Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 110 in verse 1. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then maybe they remember Jesus using that verse when he asked them, well, is Messiah the son of David? And if he is, why did David say this? So that they were stumped. They didn't know how to do that. They didn't know how to process that. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, I don't know if he had more to preach than that or he preached more than that. We just know he stopped right there. But the people hearing that were penetrated to their heart the scripture says they were cut to the heart and they said to peter and to the other apostles brothers 
What shall we do? Don't you wish some conviction like that would come upon people? (laughs) Okay, what are we supposed to do? And Peter says this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. The promise is for you and your children and for all who far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, you can read verses 40 through the rest of the, rest of the chapter. It's an amazing, this is, this is the culture that was created. Because every day it says the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. They had all things in common. There was not a, a touch of meism, of what's in it for me. I'm being left out of fellowship. Nobody asked me to go to dinner with them, and I'm leaving. You know, somebody offended me. They said something. They did, they, they have, they, you know, it just goes, somebody posted something on Facebook, and I'm not going to church anymore. They said, what, what, what is that? And this is, this is, this is the plan. This is the plan. It's, it's not our plan. It's his plan. But his plan involves you, and it includes you. You know, some of the words of the song, that last song, you know, our hearts, your glory is what our hearts long for. You see, God is ready to do things in your life. He's waiting on you. You're not waiting on him. He's, wait, he's, he's got a plan for you. And that plan includes an immersion in his spirit. He wants to immerse you. Because, see, everybody has kind of like a good side to them, right? I, I would think that. You know, if, if the food is good, there's a good side to you. If ice cream is tasty, there's a good side. you like happy and, you know, like pleasant to be around. But it's our carnality that we have to deal with. It's that provocation that erupts. And I want to tell you, that's what this plan addresses. It's not the immersion of your good instincts, but the immersion where the other instincts that are not of God gets pushed aside, gets displaced. Can I put it this way? Here's what the Lord wants to do, and I'll just use myself as an example. The Lord wants to displace Charles Lynn from Charles Lynn, and he wants to replace what's displaced with himself. He wants more of who he is in this body, in this mind. You know, Holy Spirit, thou art welcome here. It's not, to me, that's not an invitation to be welcomed in this building. To me, that's an invitation to be welcomed right here. To be welcomed right here. To be welcomed right here. There's a reason why the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit was the Spirit getting control of people's tongues. There's a reason he could have done something else. But he chose to have that evidence to be totally yielded. What's the second song we did? I Surrender. Would you stand with me? And I'm, this, this is Pentecost Sunday. This is all I'm, I'm going to say to you. 
You said something. How did you put it? Those who are here that are longing for the Lord and thirsty for the Lord, the Lord is ready to satisfy your longing. And at this point in my life, I am longing for him. I want more of him. And we're just going to play that song. And I want to invite you to just come and stand around the front and tell the Lord you're ready for whatever he has for you. You're ready to be filled. You're ready to be used for his glory. Would you join me just coming and standing here? Holy Spirit, you are welcome. We're going we're gonna to pray for a Pentecost outpouring. Right here. Right here, Lord. Hungry hearts. Longing hearts.